1 Corinthians 4. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found trustworthy. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. <laughs> disrepute. Uh, to the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I urge you then to be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ, as I teach them everywhere in every church. Some are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of these arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod, or with love and a spirit of gentleness? Let's start with a word of prayer, and then we'll turn to the Lord with that. Uh, Lord, we, uh, we sang great songs of, of you this morning, and how good it is that you are our God. Uh, we confess um, publicly, without shame, without blushing, that Jesus is God, that he is God incarnate, fully God, fully man, that he came for us sinners and for our salvation. And what a glorious truth, Lord. There is no God like that. No God would ever come and die for his people. No God would ever step down from heaven to become fully human and fully God at the same time. It is a mystery that is just glorious. And thank you for that, Jesus. May we never get sick of that. May we never become accustomed to that and think that that is a, a simple, basic thing. Um, it is a profound mystery. And we're grateful that you have told us that you revealed it to us. And Lord, I want to pray for the, the, turmoil, the turmoil going on in our world today. Um, 
with uh, the war continuing in Ukraine and, and the war in Gaza. Um, Lord, it's, it's horrific to see the, the civilians who are dying in the midst of all of this, the, the um, people who are being used as human shields in Gaza and all the horrible things that are going on. And Lord, we just pray that you would come and bring an end to this. Lord Jesus, please return and reign on this earth and put an end to wars, put an end to human strife. Lord, come and be our king, we pray. And in the meantime, we pray for your church throughout the world that she would know how to respond, know how to act, know how to speak. Uh, Lord, that you would speak with care and wisdom, uh, love for uh, those in need, those who are uh, marginalized, those who are cut out, um, rebuking those who are in power and abusing it. And so, Lord, just have mercy on this, this broken world. Thank you for dying for this disordered place, and we anticipate the day when you will bring order to it. In the meantime, Lord, we pray that your people would remain faithful, pray that we'd continue to trust you and follow you. And so, Lord, to that end, would you bless the preaching of your word now? We use it to teach our hearts to love what is beautiful, to hate what is wrong and ugly, and to seek the best for all of your creation. Um, we weren't asked to step down from heaven, but you asked us to be faithful in the grave. And so, Lord, may we follow your example. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Um, don't know if you have ever heard of him. You, you may have heard the name, or maybe you haven't, but there's a man, Christopher Guest. He is an American-British screenwriter, composer, musician, director, actor, and comedian. Um, He's been in a ton of movies. He's been in numerous TV shows. Um, if you've ever seen The Princess Bride, that movie The Princess Bride, he's the six-fingered man who um, Inigo Montoya is going to die, kill. You, you killed my father, prepared to die. So that's him. That's Christopher Guest. Um, he's got a couple of interesting facts about him, though. He, he has been married to Jamie Lee Curtis, no slouch of an actress, pretty famous, since 1984. They've been married longer than Lisa and I in Hollywood. I think that's a remarkable thing uh, to be married that long in Hollywood. The pressures there are horrible. Here's the really interesting thing about him. This is just an aside. It has nothing to do with my point. I just thought it was cool. He is the fifth Baron Hayden Guest of Great Selling in the County of Essex. And up to 1999, he was a member of the House of Lords in the United Kingdom. Christopher Guest, a comedian, an actor. You wouldn't think that of him. Um, but that's the guy. He's just an interesting, complex person. One of his things, his kind of shtick that he does now is he makes movies that are mockumentaries. It's like a, a fake documentary, and he, he focuses on different events, different things, and, and has these mockumentaries. So, for example, there's one called Best in Show, and it's about a dog show. And it's, it's a fake documentary about this dog show or A Mighty Wind. And that's a fake documentary about this uh, folk music uh, festival. Um, another one called Waiting for Guzman is about uh, um, community theater, which is really difficult to watch. <laughs> Very awkward. Uh, his biggest, most famous one, the one that made him really famous was This is Spinal Tap, about a fake music band on tour. Now, what's interesting about these films, oh, by the way, real quick, I just want to say I am not advocating these films. They're, they're funny, but 
there's some crude humor in it. It's very worldly. I am, however, advocating for Princess Bride. That, that's a good one and immensely quotable. So that's a good one. But the other ones, they have some rough edges to them. But at the same time, there's something endearing about them because what you see is people being people. And you get to see their weakness and their vanity and their shallowness and their kindness and all of these kind of things. Now, what's, what's interesting about these films is they are largely unscripted. So what he does is he writes a general outline of this is how the movie is going to go. Here's the scenes. He writes a, like a history or a, a personality profile of the characters. And then he hires actors who are actually comedians. And they just get together and improv in these things. So there'll be a, a couple that's being interviewed. And they don't have a script that they're going by. They're just riffing off each other. And so sometimes it's hilarious. Sometimes it's really awkward. But it's always interesting. And so I, th these films can be interesting from that perspective, just, just watching these professional comedians go at it. It's like somebody brought the camera into the writer's room and they just started filming. You know, They put them in costume and just go for it. So it's really fascinating. Now imagine for a second if one of these films were being made and one of the actors decided that they were better than all the other ones. They started name dropping. They started telling people how to deliver their lines. Uh, you know, that's not as funny. Try this. And they started just dominating it. That would change the mood of the movie, wouldn't it? I mean, part of the excitement about it, part of the charm of it is it's unscripted and it's just wild and things just are, are happening. And sometimes the actors will surprise each other with things. But imagine if somebody didn't play along that way, if they decided that they were a better actor than anybody else. And and um, they would not really want to associate with these lesser comedians. And at the end of the take, they'd run off to their dressing room and not have anything to do with anybody or start name dropping. You know, Spielberg and I were discussing this scene uh, earlier this week, and we think, um, or, uh, you know, Leo DiCaprio and I were, uh, he, he told me a funny thing this weekend when we were partying at his place. Or um, when I did Comedians in Cars with Seinfeld, he made a point about this, and, and you should pay, probably pay attention to this. And, Hang on for a second. I got to call Chris Rock and ask him about this scene. You know, imagine if that happened. What would that do to the film? What would that do to the the atmosphere of the movie? If somebody suddenly decided that they were too good for everybody else, it, it would ruin it. It would make it not as much fun. It would make it horrible to be with because these, some this person would be so full of themselves that they just thought they were better than everybody else, and their character might be like that. There are numerous characters who like that. But the actor can't be like that. They need to be involved in that. And so that would ruin the thing. It would just make it horrible. And so this, this morning when we look at chapter 4, it's kind of what's going on in Corinth. Is, is the people in Corinth have decided that they're better than, this group is better than that group, and this person is better than that person, and, and they're name-dropping, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, that kind of stuff. And it's ruining the atmosphere of the church in Corinth. They have gone beyond what is written. Now, the script for, for the people in, in Christopher Guest's movie is not word for word, line for line, ironed out. It's this is generally how you should behave. And the same thing has happened in Corinth is, is we don't get a script from the scriptures that says you do this and this and this and this. It's generally ironed out, and we have to figure out how to behave in that. So when we go beyond what's written and we take on to ourselves more than we should, it can really ruin the atmosphere in, in a church that way. So that's what Paul is going to address. Now, we're at chapter 4. Remember, the whole thing started in chapter 1. It's been reported to me from Chloe's people that there's division among you. That's how it started. This is actually the end of that discussion. 
This is where he's bringing that to close. In chapter 5, what he's going to talk about is when there's sin in the church and you don't deal with it. So this is the end of that first part. Now, the problem is there's a chapter break here. Chapter breaks can sometimes make it hard to keep thoughts together in Scripture. So it felt like last week, like chapter 3 was the end of the discussion, but chapter 4 really is. So we have to kind of go back and remember what was going on. So here's the problem is it started out with that report from Chloe's people. There were people in the church going, oh, I'm of Paul, and I'm of Apollos, and, and I'm of Cephas. And then another group said, no, I'm of Christ. And what I said at the time was it sounds like the I'm of Christ ones were the right ones and everybody else was wrong. Um, what they're saying is, is since I was baptized by Paul, I'm more spiritual than you are. Or, you know, since Apollos has come and preached to us, you know, I'm going to go with his preaching more than that. And there's these divisions. And you would think, well, the I'm of Christ are the good guys, right? <laughs> yeah, no, they're actually a little bit more sanctimonious than the rest because what they're saying is, I don't need any of those teachers. They can be dismissed. I, it's me and my Bible. Me and Jesus, and, and they elevate themselves even more than the other ones. So it's really a mess. And so Paul had been arguing with that. So in chapter 2, he's, he, he wants to, actually the end of chapter 1, beginning of, or throughout chapter 2, what he wants to do is say, here's what you should be focusing on. And he really elevates Jesus and the gospel. That's where our unity should come from. It's, it's because we've been born again by the Spirit. That's where our unity should be. And then in chapter 3, he starts explaining how teachers fit into this equation. So now when we get to chapter 4, he's bringing that whole thing to a close. He's going to wrap it all up, and he's going he's to touch back on a number of things that have happened before. Um, so here's how he starts. He says, this is how one should regard us. In light of everything that we've said before, this is how you should regard us. How should you think about your leaders, about your spiritual guides, about your pastor, your elders, your teachers? How should you think about them? How should they fit into your equation of what the Christian life looks like? This is how you should do it. You should think of them as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. So this is important. Remember early on I said that the illustration I used was an organizational chart. Who do I work for in this organizational chart? It's kind of going back to that again. Where do the, where do the pastors, the elders, the, pa uh, the, the teachers, the spiritual guides, where do they fit into this? Well, they're working for Jesus just like us. And this is important because if we think, that this, this um, person is working for me, working for the church, working, you know, they're accountable to me, and they believe it, the teacher believes that, what you can wind up doing is saying things that make people happy. I don't want to lose my job. I don't want to come in here and tell you something that you don't want to hear. So you could, you could wind up actually working for the wrong person. And if you've got a raucous group like the Corinthians, and you're trying to make them happy, you're not going to write fiery letters like this. You're going to find ways to smooth it over. But if you think of these pastors, these leaders, these missionaries, these, these elders as working for Jesus, then what happens is they're, they're responding to him. They're reporting to him. And his question is not, did you make everybody happy? It is, did you lead them to me? Did you lead them more to me? And so this is how you should think about your spiritual leaders, the people you look up to, is they, if they're doing it right, if they're at their best, they are servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. When we talked about mysteries earlier, just to remind you, the mysteries of God are not hidden secret teachings that only certain people know. Um, the mysteries of God are this idea that the Gentiles would be brought in, that the gospel would go out to the whole world, that, the, that, that Jew and Gentile would be together in the church. Those are the mysteries of God. And that's what Paul is doing. That's what he's charged with. So this is how we have to think about our teachers. This is how we have to see our, our leaders. And so sometimes 
they're going to be a little bit prickly. And what we're going to see this morning is Paul is going to get right in their faces. He's going to be really strong with them because he's responding to Jesus' uh, Jesus' command, not to how do I make the the Corinthians happy. So he goes in in verse 2. Moreover, not only should you regard us as stewards of the mysteries of God and, and servants of Christ, moreover, it is required of servants that they be found faithful. So when, when, what he's saying is don't just accept a teacher or a, or a preacher or something just because you like the sound of their voice or they got a really cool name or wear really neat robes or whatever it is. You have to look and say they are to be held accountable to Christ. Are they being that way? Are they found faithful? Then in verse 3, he goes on, he says, but with me it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. So he's putting himself, he's saying, let me put myself in this example. I don't care what you think of me. It doesn't bother me if you judge me. That's not important to me. I don't even judge myself. I don't even trust my own judgment. I'm not aware of anything I'm doing wrong, but I'm not counting on my clear conscience defending me. So what he's articulating here is that he is justified by faith alone. He's justified because he has trusted in Christ. He doesn't even believe his own heart. He knows that it's possible that he could be deceitful in some certain way, and he's not aware of it, and he would, he would correct it otherwise, but he's not counting on his own righteousness. He's saying, I'm going to stand before God, and it's Christ who is my justification. So I'm not worried about being judged by you or any other human court. That, that's not what I'm here for. I'm here to do something very specific and very good for you. I'm here to bring you Jesus Christ. So it can feel like, if I'm not serving you, if I'm not here to make you all happy, then it's, it can seem like, well, then I'm not taking care of my people. I'm not taking care of the church. I shouldn't be doing that, right? If my focus is on Christ, then when we go in a good direction, I'm praising us. When we go in a bad direction, I'm correcting us because I'm looking more to Jesus. Now, that's actually good news for you because Jesus doesn't want you to be going in bad directions. He doesn't want you to believe bad things or, or uh, practice bad practices. So if I'm faithful to Jesus, we all benefit. We, we all do better. It's better when your leadership is like that. It's better when we're paring, paying attention to what Christ wants so that if our desires, if our plans go a little bit off, we're looking to the better standard. So that's what he means by I don't judge. I don't care if you judge me. I don't, I don't care if anybody judges me. I don't even judge myself. He is not saying Never judge any, any preacher that comes. He's, there's plenty of times where he is saying, you got to evaluate these people. There's plenty of times where he rebukes people for bad teaching. What he's saying is, keep your eyes, the leadership needs to keep their eyes on Christ. And if they're doing that, then that's the people you want to be around. That's who you want to follow. So I'm not aware of anything in myself, but I don't care. That's not the point. The point is, the Lord is the one who judges me. He's the one that I must answer to. Therefore, he says, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the hidden things in, the, in darkness, or the things now hidden in darkness, and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. So you remember last week, Paul used a couple of metaphors. One was planting and growing. So he planted, Apollos watered, God gives the growth. The other one he used was he laid a foundation. He put this perfect cornerstone in. He lined it up. He dropped it in, set it down on solid bedrock. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And now the church is being built up on that. What he said was, 
And whatever anybody builds on that foundation, that person of Jesus Christ, whatever gets built on that, whether it's precious stones or gold or something like that, or wood, hay, and stubble, it will be tested by fire. He's returning to that image now. He's, he's saying, don't you guys pronounce judgment on anybody. Ultimate, you know, eternal uh, judgment on them. Um, but wait till the Lord comes, and then we'll find out. So, for example, there have been teachers that I have really admired. I thought they were doing a great job. But I never looked and said they're ultimate. They are the, the perfect paragon example of everything. One of the great, one of the most grievous examples is Ravi Zacharias. He was a wonderful apologist. He would tell great stories. He was, he was very smart, and I liked listening to him. But after his death, it turned out that he was a serial sexual abuser. So I didn't want to pronounce judgment, eternal judgment on him. I, I would evaluate him and listen to what he had to say and, and take it. So that's what I think Paul is getting at here is, is you guys, when you look to your leaders, when you look to the, pre the preachers and the teachers, don't say, well, this must be it. This must be the perfect person who has never done anything wrong and never will do anything wrong. That's not the right judgment. Remember what these people are like. They're made out of clay. They're, they're, they have all these things. That's why he talks about the, the, um, the, hidden, the things that are hidden now, the darkness in darkness. And then he says the purposes of the human heart. Right? Jeremiah said the human heart is wicked and deceitful above all else. Who can understand it? So he, that's why he says, I don't even trust myself in this. So that's where he's going with this, is, is we do need to look at and evaluate and listen to our teachers and our leaders, but don't think that they're ultimately it. And, and we'll get to how you do that. How can we do that then? So this is how he's going to approach it. This is where he goes. Now in verse uh, 3, he's, oh, yeah, he said that. All right, we did that. Verse 6, I'm sorry. He says, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your behalf. So I am taking Apollos and I as examples, and I'm holding them up, and I'm applying these things to us so that you can see how this ought to work. I'm doing this for your benefit, brothers, that you may, not, uh, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, for none of you may be puffed up in favor one against the other. So I'm applying it to Apollos and I, but these lessons for, are for you as well. You should apply these same kind of things so that you're not puffed up against one, one another. Now, one of the th curious things that he says is right in the middle, he says not to go beyond what is written. What what is written is he talking about? Is it what he's written so far in this letter? Is it what has been written previously and they're exchanged back and forth? Is it all of the Bible? Um, well, if you look back through the, the first part of the book, you'll see four times when he says, as it is written, and he quotes Old Testament. Twice he quotes Isaiah, once he quotes Jeremiah, and once he quotes Job. So I think when he says beyond what is written, I think in, a, in an immediate sense what he's talking about is the Old Testament. That's what he's been quoting so far. So don't go beyond what the Old Testament says. Why? So that you won't be puffed up. Okay, so what is it about the Old Testament that I should be paying attention to? Well, if you look at his quotes, he's talking about the wisdom of the wise will be confused. The discernment of the discerning is, is discounted. In other words, what he's looked at so far and what he's brought to them and held before them is what the Old Testament has to say about humility. And, and humility, I say this all the time, mostly because I need to remember it, but humility is agreeing with God as to who I am. What does the Bible say about me? And, and if I believe and understand what the Bible has to say about me and others, then there's no place for being puffed up against one, one another. 
no, no place to be judging each other and, and saying I'm more important. Why? Because what does the Old Testament tell us? It says that we were all created in God's image. All of us. So there's not one category of person where we go, well, you know, but I'm superior to them. No, you're, you're, they're an image bearer just like you are. And then it doesn't take too long until we get to chapter 3, and all of us are broken by sin. All of us. So when you look at another person, you go, well, they struggle with this sin, and I have never had a problem with that sin. Yeah, but what are you having a problem with? We're all in that same, we're all in that same place. So if we go to the Old Testament and we say, what does the Old Testament say about me? It says you are far more sinful than you realize. You are, you are a sinner that needs to be saved, and you are more exalted than you can believe. You are born in the image of God. It, it's, a, it's a beautiful picture, and it's humility because you don't go, well, that just applies to me. You look to everybody and say, this is us. This is who God has created. This is the world that we live in. And so when we see somebody acting horrible, we can say that that's the product of sin in their lives. And we know what the answer is. We can have, there's hope for that person. They could be saved. Um, you don't have to look and say that's, that's some subspecies of human. When, when October 7th happened and all the barbarism in Israel, when the Hamas came through and uh, did all those things, people were saying this is demonic. And in one instance, I would say, well, yeah, it is. But in another, I was like, no, it's thoroughly human. This is what human beings are capable of. And that's, that's the humility that we need to hold. So when he says to not go beyond what's written, what we have to do is we have to say, this is what the Bible has told us. This is what it says we're like. And we, we need to not go beyond that and say, well, there's another category of people. And now that we're Christians, we're so much better than everybody else. It's just not what the Bible is saying. It's not what it's telling us. It, it's, it's Jesus is telling us that we should have mercy on other people and have compassion for them and bring the gospel to them. They need to be redeemed. They need to be saved from their sins as well. So don't go beyond what's written. That's that illustration from the Christopher Guest films. Is If somebody goes beyond, here's the character that I've developed for you. Play this person. If they go beyond that and say, well, they, they're also very smart. That's not what the script says. That's not the description. That's going beyond what's written. The same thing here. If we look at what the Bible says, and well, yeah, that's true, but I have, or I did, or something like that, that's going beyond what's written. That's why at the end he says that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one another, that, that you wouldn't be puffed up. If something's puffed up, what's inside of it? Hot air. <laughs> so if you are puffed up, so that you think you're better than somebody else, basically what he's saying is you're full of hot air. <laughs> There's nothing really going on inside there. So verse 7, he goes on, for who sees anything? He asks three questions that are kind of pointed, and then right after that, he's going to do three very sarcastic responses. So he says, um, verse 7, for who sees anything different than you? And why do you have, what, what, what do you have that you did not receive? And if then you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? Three rhetorical questions. Who sees anything different in you? Are you not what the scriptures have said you are? Does anybody look at you and think, oh, this, this person surely can't have been affected by sin. Look at how wonderful they are. Or uh, this person certainly is not you know, in that kind of a category. People look at you and they go, yeah, no, we're all the same. So who sees anything different in you? Or, or what have you got that you didn't receive? What is it that you've been given that you didn't receive? So one of the question, one of the kind of apologetic questions is God says, okay, um, I want you to create life. 
and, and scientists begin to mix chemicals and stuff. He goes, no, 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 you don't get to start with that. Create your own universe first. That, that's that kind of thing. What did you get that you didn't receive? Everything that we have, we have been given to, uh, being given from God. He's given it to us. So if you have received a gift, does that mean, oh, I must be superior to you because somebody gave me this? No, you, you, the only reason that you have it is because you've been given. And so then he says, then why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? Why do you boast as if you had this all along? Why do you think that aligning with Paul or Apollos or something makes you a better person? These people are gifts from God. You should treat them that way. Now, where he goes next is kind of startling. He says, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. This is what is referred to as sarcasm. He is being sarcastic. Are they rich? No, they're middle class. Corinth was, was once a pretty popular place, but now it's kind of middle class. They're not rich. Do they have all they want? Well, no, of course not. They're still struggling and fighting and arguing and that kind of stuff. They want more. And then um, you have become kings. There are no kings in Corinth. They're all commoners. So this is something called sarcasm. This is taking the position that they've had, they, they think they have, and inflating it and making it huge so that it stands out and it looks ridiculous. And then he can apply them and help them see how ridiculous their pride is. So uh, just a word on sarcasm here. There is a place for Christian sarcasm. It is not on social media because way too much sarcasm happens on social media. And it's not, if we look to Paul and say, how did Paul do it? You'll notice that he doesn't drip with sarcasm at every moment. There are times when rhetorically a sarcastic response is needed to draw attention to something that people may be blind to. These Corinthians can't quite see what their inflated ego is doing to them. So Paul takes it and he sarcastically says, oh, look, you, have, you are totally satisfied. You have everything you want. You're very rich. And boy, are you royal to make them ashamed of what they're hearing. So it can be appropriate to use sarcasm in proper measure at appropriate times, but I think we default to it way too fast, especially on social media. Um, and social media is a horrible place to do that because they can't hear your tone of voice and don't know you're being sarcastic. So just that kind of an aside on that. So this is what he does. Is he, he wants to inflate that and bring it to their attention, make it big so they can't miss it. And he says, and would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. Wouldn't it be great if we were reigning? There is a time coming when Jesus will return and he will rule on this earth and we will reign with him. That ain't now. That hasn't happened yet. And, and, and so it would be, that's what Paul is looking for. It would be wonderful if that was the case. It's not the case. So don't be inflated. Don't think that you can go around judging people and being divided and thinking you're superior. That's not what's happening. Then in verse 9, he begins to apply that. Now he's, he's shown their, their pride, their, their puffed-up arrogance. And now in verse 9, he's going to say, now look for a second. Look at us. I'm offering myself as a model for you. Look at the condition that we're in. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. He says, I, I think... In other words, he's not being dogmatic about it. He's, he's being kind of in a, in a general sense. This is, this is what I'm thinking. I'm thinking that God has exhibited us apostles. 
Now, I don't want to dig into what an apostle is. That will come up in chapter 9 when Paul defends his apostleship. But I do need to touch on it here. It's us apostles. So in context, who am us? Who is us? Well, in the context, immediately, it's Paul and Apollos. And I guess you could throw in Cephas because that's from the beginning till Peter. Um, Peter's definitely an apostle, right? He was called by Jesus personally. He was kind of the leader of the apostles. Was Paul an apostle? That's a debatable question. I think he was the 13th of the 12 apostles. We'll get to that later. But Apollos, was Apollos an apostle? Well, it depends on what you mean by apostle, right? In, in Acts 14, verse 14, it says the apostles... Peter, or the apostles, Paul and Barnabas. So Barnabas was apparently an apostle. So what's an apostle? Just a quick summary, I'll prove it later, is in this context, I think the best way to approach that is to say a missionary. The term that we would use today would be more of a missionary. Not necessarily the 12, the 12 apostles who were foundational to the church, but, but a missionary, somebody who's coming to teach and to preach and that kind of thing. I think that's who he's applying it to. So I think God has, has exhibited us apostles as the last of all, not the greatest people, like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. We have become a spectacle. The Greek word is theatron. What do you think that means? Theater, right? We have become a theater. He's using the word theater to, to talk about what goes on in the theater, this, this act, this dramatic play, this, this representation of something startling that's happening and so he says that's who god has displayed us as that's what he's brought us into the world for is we are a spectacle now it says between before the world um the angels and man and i think what he means there is we are this spectacle before heaven and earth we can understand the earth part i mean when when you see a missionary go into a, a, a place and and struggle and have tr difficulty Maybe their family who are not Christians would look at them and go, why are you wasting your life? You're, you're going to this remote place and, and you can't ever, you know, make any converts here and it's just not working. Why would you do that? Why would you, have, why would you do it that way? Or um, perhaps a missionary goes someplace and is, is killed. And isn't that a waste of life and why are you doing that? Or why are you contaminating these other things? And so when people look at these missionaries going and, and sharing the gospel in difficult places, they, they kind of look like a spectacle. Like it, it's a drama. It's... You know, either praiseworthy as they brought wonderful things to the people and they brought drugs for taking care of their, their sicknesses they had or a horrible thing, you're contaminating your society. It's, it's just an act of drama. But angels? What is it about angels that they would look at this? Well, Peter says that the angels, when they consider our salvation, that's something they long to look into. God, you see, had mercy on humanity. He said, I'll send my son to redeem humanity when they fall. But when the angels fell, he created hell. There was no place for salvation for him. So the angels who didn't fall go, we want to look into it. We haven't experienced this mercy that he's showing to mere humans. We want to look into that. And so that's the beautiful thing is, is they want to peer into this and understand this. But there's another thing that God does. And this is from Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. He says, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God may be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Why is God saving us? Why is he working in the church? He's showing off his glory in the church. 
Look at my glory. Look at my mercy. Look at the, the kindness and what I extend to these people. And the angels stand and stare and they go, that is incredible. That is amazing, Lord. He's showing the angels in the church his manifest wisdom. And so that's why I think what he means when he says before angels, as, as the angels are looking out and saying, you're, you're trusting these fallen, broken human beings with something as precious as the gospel of Jesus Christ? Surely there's a plan B. Nope, no plan B. This is how it's going to happen. This is the manifold wisdom of God. And so the missionaries, as they go forward and carry this out, that's what they're being shown to be a spectacle of. That's what it looks like. So while the Corinthians imagine themselves to be satisfied with their wealth and their power, Paul continues with the sarcasm by showing them how those who led them to Christ, where they were supposedly gained this lush lifestyle, experienced the exact opposite. He's saying, look, you guys think that by becoming Christians, you're going to be satisfied in all things and rich and powerful and all that. That's not true. Look at us. Are you better than us? Are you more superior to us? Did you get Christianity right and we got it wrong because we're suffering? That's just not the picture. There is something about the Christian life that, even though it's not easy at times, it is a spectacle to the world. It is a, it is a curiosity. Even if they hate it, it's a curiosity. Why would you people be like this? And so the Christian life, according to Paul, according to this, is not one of ease and wealth and fame and, and luxury. As a matter of fact, in Acts 14, he says, that after Paul had gone through and ended his first missionary journey, he went back strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of heaven. We will enter the kingdom of God not on a bed of ease, but through tribulation, through difficulty, through struggle. That's the picture. That's what the Corinthians are missing. That's what they're not understanding at this point. They think they've got it all. And Jesus himself said, remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they keep my word, they will keep your word. That's the promise that we have. That's what the, this looks like. So when Paul uses that sarcasm to hold up their, their pride and their, their comfort and all this stuff and thinking that they've got it all together, and then he turns and he says, now look at me. He's not saying this is reserved only for the apostles, for the, for the, the missionaries. He's saying, this is the normal Christian life. We're exhibiting it for your benefit. We're standing here so that you can see it. So you Corinthians, understand when you're trying to align with Paul or Apollos or something, you're, you're not even getting close because you think that somehow is going to make you more important or, or better than your neighbor. And that's dangerous. That's not what he wants them to believe. That's not what he wants them to see. So that's why he tells them, don't go beyond what's written. Don't go off script. This is, this is what God has given you. He's told you these things. Stick to that. Hang on to that humility. And here's a great promise repeated twice in the New Testament. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. If you agree with God, he'll give you even more grace. That's the, pro the promise. And so now verse 14, he says, I do not write these things to make you ashamed, but to admonish you as my beloved children. I, I'm not trying to... Um, bring you shame just to, to make you feel bad because I, I'm actually the most important and you think you are, so I need to shame you into that. He said, that's not what I'm doing. Why am I bringing these harsh words to you? Why am I so sarcastic with you right now? Because I love you like my children. I, I, my alignment, my allegiance is to Christ 
He has died for you, for this church, and therefore I see you as my responsibility, and I want to shepherd you to the, the, the um, Savior. So I'm not trying to make you ashamed. I'm trying to admonish you as my beloved children. Verse 15, for though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ through the gospel. What he means is, he's going back to what he said at the beginning. I came to Corinth and I preached the gospel. I determined to know Christ and him crucified. That was what I came to do. So that made him the father of these new believers. He, he helped them come to Christ and, and he's coming to them as a, as a father. For though you have countless guides, you don't have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ through the gospel. Therefore, I urge you then to be imitators of me. So Paul now goes back and he says, all that stuff I said about my, my shame and, and being counted as, as uh, a spectacle and uh, struggling and all these things, imitate me now. Why? Because Paul is heading to Christ. He's trying to faithfully bring him to Jesus Christ. So that's what the father does is he takes them to, uh, to Jesus. I urge you to be imitators of me. That's why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. So remember, he, his point was, don't go beyond what is written. And what he said earlier, I missed the verse, but he says, I wrote these things to you that. That, I think, is what opens up the door to say, it's not just the Old Testament we go to, but to the New Testament as well. He wrote these in order that he's in line with what the scriptures have been saying. The Old Testament, he's saying it too. Now, as this was written, 1 Corinthians was one of the earlier books. There wasn't a whole bunch of New Testament written. But the church knew something was going on as these books were being written. They knew that there was something more than just letters flying back and forth. Because Peter will say, hey, they distort the other scriptures just like they do Paul's writings. The other scriptures like Paul's. He puts Paul's writing into the category of the other scriptures. So the church knew something was going on. They're looking at this, and they're approaching the scriptures, and they're saying, as it's forming now, but also that the Old Testament, according to the way that the, the, preacher, the, the, the apostles are teaching here, the Old Testament is actually a Christian document. How do you get a Christian document from the Old Testament? Isn't that imposing something foreign on it? No, not really. If we look to how Paul did this, he, he wrote these to us. He wants us to see. He's teaching us how to look at the Old Testament. And so when he reads the Old Testament, what he does is he is constantly finding Christ. He's, he's actually even pulling out uh, ethical admonitions for us. One of the cool ones, I can't wait to get to it in here, is he says, he quotes uh, Deuteronomy that says, you shall not muzzle the ox when it's uh, treading grain. So what they would do is they would tie an ox to a long pole with a big wooden or a big um, stone wheel on it, and they would throw grain out, and then the, the ox would just go in a circle, and that big heavy wheel would crush the grain it would make flour for him and Moses said you can't put a muzzle on that ox if it stops and eats some of the grain off the ground you let it do it that's what it says in the Old Testament Paul this is mind-blowing this is why I can't wait to get there Paul picks it up and says that's why you have to pay your taxes he looks to the law he looks to the Old Testament and he says here's an ethical statement and it applies to us so this is how we approach the Old Testament. When we go to the Old Testament, we look there, and we look through the eyes of our apostles. We look at how Jesus read it, and we read our Old Testament that way, expectantly looking for Jesus there. That's how we've, we've seen it done. So when he writes now, we have the benefit of having a whole canon, the entire New Testament. We have a whole Bible, 
New Testament and Old. So we've got this guidebook in the New Testament saying this is what the Old Testament looks like. This is how you approach it. This is how you read it. And what it's going to show you is it's going to show you, first of all, your need for a Savior, the promise of a Savior in Jesus Christ, and the coming of the Savior. That's what the whole story is about. So that's, that's what he's wanting them to do. As a father, he's going to his children and saying, please see it this way. Be an imitator of me. Follow me that way. So that's how, we, that's how we can not go beyond what is written. When you look at the whole Bible, we don't get on Tuesday, November 15th, you will rise at this time in the morning. We, you don't get that script of line by line, move by move, that kind of thing. Instead, you get, here's how you should live your life. And it would be much nicer if we got scripts, wouldn't it? You woke up in the morning, you opened to... Uh, Timothy Etherington, chapter 61, and, and read, what am I going to do today? But that's not how it is. It's, it's the Bible, and it's painting this broad picture. How should a Christian live? This is Christopher Guest writing a, a, a character profile on somebody. This is God writing a character profile on you and saying, this is then how you should live. This is what it looks like for you. Here's the general parameters. Now, go out and live that way, but don't go beyond what's written. Don't add to that story. Don't add other things to it. Why? Because you are in danger then of becoming puffed up. You can begin to add the part of the story where you're actually better than other people or smarter than them or better looking than them or, or wealthier than them or whatever it is. And it's like that's, that's not the story. That's not the story that we're enacting here. That's not the story that's going on in the theater. That's the drama that we're part of. So I urge you then, be imitators of me. That's what Paul says. This is why I sent you Timothy. I sent Timothy to you so you could continue to see. I didn't retire to a pleasant villa in Italy as soon as I was done with you guys. I'm still out sharing the gospel. And Timothy is my word to you to, to see that coming. So that's, that's the encouragement to the church. This is what they should be doing, how they should see the, the teachers and the preachers in their life, the leaders, is yes, admire them as they follow Christ, imitate them. As they teach Jesus Christ, as they're faithful to their master, that's when you should, have, um, should attach yourself to them. Now the bad news. Now we, get, now we get the shoe out, and he's going to smack somebody. Listen to what he says in this last part. Some of you are arrogant, as though I were not coming to you. But I will come to you, if the Lord wills, and I will find out not the talk of those arrogant people, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in talk, but in power. What do you wish? Shall I come to you with a rod? or with love and a spirit of gentleness. This is the threat, right? This is, this is mom's got the, the sandal in her hand, and she's about to start whacking on people. Now, what do you want? Do you want me to come, and do you want me to punish you, or do you want me to come and love on you? It's your choice. Are you going to listen to what I've said? He just said, I'm like a father, right? I'm dad. Wait till your father gets home. For your younger folks, that was what our parents used to say was, you know, dad would come home and beat you. Was, was the thing. They don't do that anymore. Now mom and dad are both working, but that's the idea is dad's coming. Get your act together. What Paul is threatening him, will you respond to what I've just told you or will I come and have to deal with it? The part I don't understand is the kingdom of God consists not in talk, but in power. What power was Paul going to exhibit? What power did the Corinthians think that they were going to exhibit there? I'm not sure. I don't think it was uh, dueling spiritual gifts. Um, I don't think it was who could do the most tongues or, or you know, um, Bible turn times. or what, I don't know what it was. 
But there was a power behind what Paul was going to do. He came and he was going to admonish them. And, and that is what he's, he's going at. Hopefully, maybe as we go through the book, we'll unpack that, and I'll come back and apologize for not knowing that already. Um, but we'll see what it is. But the, the point is, that last sentence, shall I come to you with a rod or with a spirit of gentleness? Your choice. Either start obeying and, and doing what I've been telling you so far. Get over this pride. Knock off this puffed upness. And instead, don't go beyond what's written. Stick to what the scriptures are telling you should do. That's our standard. That's, that's the rule by which you're supposed to live. Don't go beyond that. Start there. And that starts with humility and seeing each other as not one inferior to the other or my tribe of the Paulites is superior to the Apollonians. Apollonius, Apollosisnesis, I'm not sure how to pronounce that word. But my tribe's better than your tribe. That's, that's not how we should approach it. That's not what he's calling us to do. And so that's the end of his argument. This, this report from Chloe ends with your choice. Straighten up or I'm going to come and, and start knocking some heads together. He, he, he is going to treat them like they're his spiritual father. He's, he's going to rebuke and, and directly address this kind of thing. So that's the end of, of that first admonition, that first thing that he's dealing with. What comes next is there's sin in the camp and you're not dealing with it. And, and that's going to be where he goes to the next problem with the Corinth, or the Corinthians. But, but so far today, hopefully we understand how to evaluate the teacher. He doesn't say never evaluate. He, does, he just says don't judge before the time. Listen to them. If they're leaning in Christ, follow them. Be imitators of me. Not, not me, Paul. <laughs> I don't want you to imitate me. <laughs> I know far better standards than that. But that's where we have to go. When, when we're tempted to see ourselves as superior to others or, or see others as, as um, teaching something inferior or lesser than us, that's where we have to go is back to not departing from what the word says. Let's evaluate ourselves by that. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I just pray that you would spare me um, from the sin of pride. Uh, Lord, that I wouldn't be puffed up thinking I know more than everybody else and um, I must be a special category of Christian. Lord, I pray for our church that we would never adopt that kind of an attitude, that we would humbly seek to encourage others. Lord, that we would only use sarcasm and, and biting words where they're appropriate. But mostly, Lord, that you grant us the wisdom to know when to do that and when not to. And so, Lord, I pray that the result of all of this is that we would be looking to our leaders, our, our teachers, our spiritual guides, those who are influential in our, our spiritual life. And as they follow Christ, as they lead us to Jesus, as they're faithful to their commission uh, to serve their master, Lord, that we would see that and follow after that. Lord, help us to not go beyond what is written, but to stay true to what your word says. And that's easy to say. It's, it's sometimes much harder to do. Lord, Holy Spirit, empower us to that end, we pray in Christ's name.